Uh, good or good morning, everybody, and good early afternoon. For those of you who want to have a seat, feel free to, to grab a seat. We've got plenty of, of comfortable chairs all around. So um, welcome. My name is Patrick. I am one of the store clerks here uh, at the Poison Pen. I'm our science fiction and fantasy selector, and I also help with our young adult. And I'm really excited today to talk with Rebecca Roque, uh, author of her premier book, Till Human Voices Wake Us. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you for coming on out and uh, joining us for your debut three days before the debut. Yes, thank <laughs> you so much for having me, Patrick. I'm really excited to be here and for this day to be coming. Is your is the mic on? Yeah. I don't know. Let's see. Yeah. Sounds like it. Perfect. All right. A green light. Green means go. Green means go. Excellent. Um, so this is really a great book. This is an exciting mystery. Um, there's only so much that we're going to be able to talk about it without totally spoiling it. So I don't want to do that. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is um, uh, the really this book gives you so much a sense that your main character is not safe, and uh, there's so much impending danger all around her that this is not only a great mystery, but a really exciting thriller as well. And so you really combined two, two of my favorite genres together. Um, tell us about the evolution of this book. What happened? Um, and what made you decide to write, write Till Human Voices Wake Us? Sure. Um, well, like yourself, I think I grew up on science fiction fantasy. That's always been my bread and butter. That's what I've always read. This really was my first venture into writing something that didn't have magic or fairies or demonic gargoyles or something in it. Um, I've always been a big fan of mysteries and thrillers. I've gone down some really deep, dark rabbit holes um, when it comes to UK lit. Mm -hmm. um, just one of those niche genres that uh, really appeals to me. But I've never really written it. Um, and this book, I think like most books for me, came to me in in that Sia came to me first. The main character came to me first, and it can sound a little schizophrenic, but I think anybody in the creative world can kind of understand that sometimes it's like, like you're not alone in your head, whether it's a painting you see or a song that you hear or a character that you get to know. Um, they just kind of start to haunt you in the periphery for a little while. And that's how writing has always worked for me as I always know the characters first and they'll kind of lurk they'll let me know who they are they'll let me know what they want and kind of how long I have until they're going to become so insistent that I have to write their story um, and in this case um, I kind of had this image of Sia as being this girl who she's only 17 but she's been through a lot she's the only survivor of a childhood fire she has literal scars to show for what she's been through um, and like a lot of trauma survivors she's determined not to be defined by it and um, in doing so she's also kind of running away from it um, and any insider knowledge it might have had to teach her and so I got to know kind of this character and she's very strong she's very clever she's very loyal um, but she has kind of these ghosts um, and then I kind of over probably a year or two piece together what her story was going to be um, and that for me in this situation came a lot from being a trauma survivor myself and kind of coping with 
the the world as we find it today. And when I wrote this book in between like 2019 and 2020, it kind of felt to me like the world was on fire. Like there's such extremes on the political spectrum, on the social spectrum, there's wars actively going on, there's wildfires. It just seems like we're at such a crossroads in time where we're really going to decide as a people kind of what direction we're going to go. Are we going to take the path of compassion? Are we going to take the path of exploitation? Are we going to move forward as a community or are we going to let it be kind of every man for himself? And it can be really overwhelming to face those things as an adult, as a young adult, as a kid, um, and just kind of trying to make sense of the world as I saw it around me. And I had this character in the back of my head um, and she just kind of naturally fell into place. Um, and that's, that was the seed of this book is when you, when you place these really courageous but really flawed and really scarred young people at these crossroads to make, to make big decisions about what kind of future they want to create. Um, what does that look like and what are the pitfalls when you haven't faced your own demons and you start trying to charge head on into the world? It's tr really true. I mean, Sia is a very damaged young character in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, she the fire that she went through was uh, the result of, of potentially her father. We don't really know. And her friend um, Ashley comes in and says, you know what? There might be a story behind your trauma, the, this, this terrible event, and everything might not be what it seems. And... Not spoil, not too far spoiler, but ultimately the next day after Ash Ashley shares that information, she's found dead, and um, I'm really intrigued with uh, that whole idea of was it a cover up? Did she have information? Um, and uh, that's kind of where you where you start us. Um, <coughs> so. Uh, I don't really feel like that's too spoilery. About three, no, about three chapters in. Yeah. Um, so, but in terms of that, I mean, you're really giving us a sense of, of danger that Sia wants to figure out what really happened to Ashley. Was it suicide? Was it, uh, like they're saying that it is, or was this something darker and more sinister? Right, and and she's got these mixed emotions, right? Because her response to her best friend coming to her with this potential revelation wasn't, you know, okay, tell me, I want to hear it. It was, I don't want to hear it. I've moved past that. I've put it behind me. And also, why are you digging into my trauma? Why are you reopening this wound? So then when Alice turns up dead, awesome. it becomes this, not just the grief of losing your best friend, but yeah. it also becomes the guilt that's involved. Well, I didn't listen to her. I didn't listen to what she had to say. And now I don't know what the thing was, but I also don't know if maybe I could have stopped this. And um, part of it, too, was I wanted to, with this whole book, and you kind of see throughout, I wanted to explore um, how we listen to and give credence to people's stories and people's experiences. And the main characters in these books are mostly teenagers. And as kids, a lot of times we dismiss their insights or dismiss their intuitions. Um, and that's what happens to Sia. That's what happens to Alice. And 
Um, Alice is a young woman of color and she has just gone through a very devastating breakup. And so she's immediately dismissed as, well, you put A plus B, like obviously, you know, she took her own life and that's tragic, but close the book and move on. And Sia knows better. She knows her friend better than that, but trying to get anyone to listen to her and to see that it's, it's not the easy explanation um, is one of her main challenges throughout this book is trying to get people in authority to listen to mm -hmm. her as a young person. I definitely got it. So when I was reading this book, I almost had, I just recently finished the book It by Stephen King. Um, and I, I very, f very much felt dairy vibes coming from the town that you're, you're describing, especially the fact that it seems like the adults have their heads, uh, buried in the sand. They don't want to see what's really going on. They don't want to see the undercurrents that are flowing through their own town, the evil that is, uh, or corruption that is, is plaguing. Um, did you did you pull from kind of those horror novels and sort of that horror sense of, you know, this town isn't really everything that we think that it should be? Absolutely. Um, I grew up reading Dean Koontz and Stephen King. I think I read Pet Cemetery probably seven or eight, way too early, um, <laughs> early enough to give me nightmares. But I was old enough to really appreciate the storytelling and um, the the idea of location or environment as character mm -hmm. um, has always been really appealing to me because it it then becomes its own kind of omnipresent, ominous, um, kind of looming threat that there's not just this one singular bad guy out there, but there's this whole town of secrets and there's all these people invested in keeping these secrets. Um, and yeah, from uh, Stephen King, is definitely a big inspiration to me because he just does that effortlessly. Um, I feel like he really embodies mood and presence in his environments and it's all done very, very deliberately, but he makes it feel effortless. I like you feel tense the whole time you're watching any of his work or reading it. Well, and I felt that way reading your book because I do not want to live in this town. <laughs> I mean, I would not feel safe living in this town. I no, mean, no. Uh, what, and the funny thing is, is that smaller cities, smaller towns do have kind of their own secrets, their own, their own pasts. And, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's not, it's nothing. It's very innocent, but other places, you know, you go to New Mexico and there's, there's some very shady towns, you know, um, uh, some creepy places across America that you know you're you're never gonna uh, we're never gonna really truly understand because you don't quite fit in. Think of Colorado City, you know the. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to understand that one. <laughs> so, what inspired you to uh, start writing? You had a career as a nurse, or you, you pro are you still a nurse as well? Yeah, still a nurse. Yep. Excellent, and you do critical care nursing. Yeah, I. Uh, a little under six months ago, I made the switch um, from a hospital-based setting, and I now work um, in the field of organ donation. Oh, and wow. um, somewhat coincidentally, um, but yeah, it's it's a field that I feel extremely passionate about, and it's it ties into this underlying passion I've always had for making meaning out of experiences and storytelling and my role in this new position that I feel very lucky to have is 
that I get to help people add an epilogue to their story. And that epilogue is giving gifts that save lives. And all of my patients have stories that are ending tragically and often far too soon. <coughs> Excuse me, but in my role, I get to add the and then to that story. Mm -hmm. And it's it's an incredible gift. You have a strong feeling that cellular memory exists in, in some respect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, carrying that forward. Because a lot of people who, who um, receive organs often develop um, certain tastes or, or remember certain things or think of certain things that, uh, uh, you know, sort of develop a little bit of that. that it's uncanny. Yeah. Yeah, people who suddenly know how to play guitar or have a passion for spicy foods or um, take to a new language that they've never spoken before. There's, there's, there's something there for sure. And it's more than science can explain. And that gives my, you know, science fiction and fantasy heart just so much <laughs> happiness. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, and, and it's true. I think that there's, there's something there you, that you really can't explain. Now, when you were, you were in the critical care, was that uh, within, were you up on the critical care floor or were you at actually at the heart of the emergency medicine? So I've never worked in the emergency room. I think I'm way too I don't know if nosy is the word, but I always wanted to know way more about my patients and get involved way more than um, the brief involvement of an emergency room nurse will allow. So I went straight into the intensive care unit. Okay. So I would have one to two patients. They'd be extremely critically ill, um, and I would get to know everything about them. Um, and often that included their story, their family, their loved ones, mm -hmm. their career, um, and it wasn't always going to end with them leaving the hospital alive so sometimes i got to be a part of kind of how that story would end and mm -hmm. that the passion for that is i think what kind of led me to my current position with with you being a nurse in that time period were you a nurse during covid yes and i so my day job i actually work for a local hospital as a systems analyst okay so i don't exactly get patient care i get to work behind the scenes and see you know but we were all working, you know, 24-7 during that time period yeah. to kind of catch up and try to figure out what was going on. And, you know, you're doing things that you never did before because of of just an in-based need. Um, was writing a catharsis for you during that time period? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually got the initial publication offer for this book in... It was March or April of 2020. It was right when the um, pandemic was kicking off. And so that became such a welcome distraction. I ended up not accepting that initial offer. And um, then Publishing World kind of shut down for a little bit. And then mm -hmm. um, we ended up at Blackstone. And Blackstone has just been such a godsend. They've been amazing. Um, but yeah, writing during the pandemic was, it was both a much needed escape and kind of a way to process everything that I was seeing in front of me. Um, there's a couple other nurses in the room here right now who worked through the pandemic as well. And that definitely forges a kind of almost like battlefront bond um, where you'd work, mm -hmm. you know, we'd work these crazy 13 hour days and you'd work nine, 10, 11, 12 days in a row because what else were you gonna do? The world was shut down and you were mm -hmm. needed at work, right? Right. Um, and 
it's a kind of intensity I hope I never know again. Um, but it also illustrated kind of what I was what I was getting at in this book is how how extreme the divide has become mm -hmm. um, between I think people's social, political, cultural beliefs um, because I had my friends all pooling money and going to Costco and spending hundreds of dollars on snacks just to support my unit and buying us food and sending me groceries and just the most unexpected, unasked for acts of kindness. Yeah. Um, and then I would see people burning their masks in the street and um, attacking people who were wearing masks or attacking people of color in the streets because they you know, believe the virus came from this place or that place. And, and it really just illustrated like, gosh, people can just be, we can be so many things. We can be so awful and we can be so wonderful. And when do we make that choice? Is that a choice mm -hmm. we continually make? And can you make a different choice? Or is that kind of just hardwired into us? And that became something that I started to explore more in my writing. And this book was already written, but it definitely kind of set the course for where I wanted to take this trilogy and where my other writing has gone. It really is. And I've got to say that um, when you read this book, um, I've got to say that you've, you're writing at a breakneck pace. Um, it's really an exciting book. And then when you leave us, you're still leaving us with a lot of questions. And I loved that because of the fact that it really makes you want to read book two and then go on and read book three because of the fact that I know that as a writer that you're not going to spoon feed us all the answers. Maybe things won't have a happy ending. I don't think all of it will, but I think you're going to give us a satisfying conclusion to once everything is done. And you can kind of feel that that build up within this book and um, usually the first book in a series kind of ties things together pretty neatly because an author doesn't know if they're going to have a third book right. but it sounds like Blackstone really liked your idea and has invested in a three book deal for you you know it from the first conversation I had um, with the editors at Blackstone I really felt their faith in me and their belief in this project and I mean, they put trilogy on here, so I feel like they're kind of like they're in this for the long <laughs> haul, um, and that that was great. Um, the first deal that I had that I turned down was with another wonderful publisher, um, and again, it came at such an amazing time. But I eventually turned it down because they wanted they wanted it to be wrapped up a little bit more neatly, um, and they wanted they wanted the story to be told more completely and I just had a bigger picture in mind for mm -hmm. Sia and for where this was going to go. Um, and that even as a debut author, even with this bird in the hand, I knew that that just wasn't quite the right step for me with this story. Um, and yeah, I, I feel really lucky that, that I found Blackstone um, and I've, I've met some other wonderful authors through Blackstone. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think they're in it for the long haul with me, and they've been really supportive. Now, n not everybody here probably has heard of Blackstone. We think of kind of the big Random House, Simon and Schuster, maybe Little Brown. Um, Blackstone has been publishing some of the best mystery novels and some of the best, um, frankly, some of the best books that I've read in years over the last few years. They're a smaller publisher. 
but they're really they've got um really great editors they've got a really good marketing team and every author that we've spoken with who's been with blackstone has absolutely loved them because of the fact that they give you a little bit more freedom as an artist to do what you need to do yeah and i've i've really appreciated that as a debut author there's definitely part of me that i just want you to tell me what to do and when to do it because it is a little nebulous sometimes navigating this world um but the fact that they they're in this because they they're readers and they're bibliophiles and they they love they love stories they love storytelling and they happen to also be very good at the business side of things which is great um but they're in it because this is the work that they love and that shows in every conversation i've had with them and in our editorial meetings and when we talk about kind of my ideas for the future of these books um it's just been really evident all along the way and they are a smaller publisher and i think because of that i've really benefited from the more individualized attention that i get like i don't feel like i'm lost in a sea of you know ten thousand other authors i feel like they've really taken a specific interest um in helping me succeed and it's it's been wonderful you know uh for blackstone started off as an audiobook company and so a lot of libraries you'd see blackstone audio and they always bought the the whole sets um and then a few years ago probably i want to say around 10 years ago or so they started shifting into doing more print work yeah and um they've got great authors brian freeman Catherine ryan howard one of my all-time favorites if you like good kind of um I don't. I wouldn't call it domestic suspense, but they're great suspense novel novels. Um, they're really they're getting some great writers, and a lot of writers are moving over towards them because of the fact that they get such good attention. Um, so I think you're really lucky. Now, you had we had um, Jennifer Garber here not too long ago, and yeah. she's become kind of a special uh, a friend or a mentor of yours. Yeah, um, I was introduced to her through a mutual friend, and they're both hiding over there. Hello. Um, and uh, I feel incredibly lucky um, to have not only somebody else who's a few steps ahead of me in their writing career, um, but also somebody who's with my same publisher. Um, like, what are the odds that we would both end up in the same place? Um, but our mutual friend is an amazing human being and it doesn't surprise me at all that she would have these very creative very bright soul circling around her um, but it's um, it's been really good anytime I have questions or um, how did you do this or even who hosts your website or whatever um, it's really nice having somebody um, who's kind of been there and can give some insight so in terms of the book tour, are now you're local here. Mm -hmm. are, are they sending you around to other cities, or are you going to go around to different conventions or anything like that to do some programming? Yeah, I think they're kind of waiting for me to kind of take the lead on that as far as where I might be interested in going. Um, there's been some talk of, so I grew up in the Midwest, so potentially Chicago, Madison, like going back to my hometown. Um and potentially getting out to LA. There was the idea of potentially 
um, setting up something here at Comic-Con because I'm a big nerd and it just seemed like a fantastic, wonderful, natural fit. Um, not sure if we're going to make that happen this year. Um, but yeah, there's, there's lots of potential out there. I think I just kind of mm. need to figure out where I want to go and let Blackstone know so they can make it happen. Exactly. We do, uh, an annual event here. Um, I'm not sure if we're doing it this year or not. We're still kind of in the planning stages cause they've moved things around and we get so many authors through, but we do an event the night before, um, Phoenix Fan Fusion, I guess, is mm -hmm. what you call it, and uh, some of the uh, the publishers will bring the authors in to do just a signing, so that that way people can get their books signed ahead of time, so they're not carrying around a oh, giant yeah. bag of books, yeah, which is sort of, of nice. And uh, uh, we have, you know, try to get as many people from there over to to do kind of the pre-signing, so that that way they can, uh, you know, and then of course they can buy buy books and things like that and it's really a lot of fun it's more of just sort of a party atmosphere yeah um but uh i've got to say that uh you know you'd be a shoe in a great fit for the fan fusion um <clears throat> so hopefully fan fusion's watching coming? and they get you in there <laughs> <laughs> may or may not have some underground connections <laughs> So um, one of the exciting things is that uh, where are you taking us? Can you give us an idea of, uh, without spoiling, with within book two where you might be leading us to or uh, a little glimmer? Yeah, so this book is definitely the tip of the iceberg when it comes to starting to uncover some secrets that have really festered for a long time unchecked. Um, both in this small town and on a larger scale. And so the next book is meant to kind of expand that. So we're not necessarily confined just to the town of Somerset. We're starting to look at, wow, this thing is a lot, a lot bigger than we thought. Um, it's a lot more insidious and the resistance is also more than we knew. So we start to become aware kind of of this bigger picture of these larger forces at play and it does start to expand out of this small town um, and uh, obviously a bigger cast of characters as Sia becomes aware of just kind of how deep this thing goes and has to decide how much she's willing to risk in order to fight for the justice that she believes in. But as somebody who has already lost everything once as somebody who has already lost an entire family and had to build a new one is she willing to risk her current family um, and everybody everything that she knows and loves in order to make things right by her best friend and by everybody else impacted it's going to be tough uh, so Sia is uh, her her real name or her first name was Silence right that's right based off of her father was a bit of a religious um, zealot. Zealot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be one of the kinder words. <laughs> and so she decides, you know, when she gets the chance to kind of update her name a little bit to, you know, her, her father's uh, help her come up with the name Silencia. That's right. Um, oh. One of her fathers. Um, so Sia has two dads, and one of them is the adopt the firefighter that rescued her from the fire and subsequently adopted her and um, he's a native Spanish speaker and so in in his language her name was Silencia and she thought that was a lot more beautiful than the 
while still preserving her identity, she thought that was a lot more beautiful and a lot more something that she could own than the name that her father had given her, which was in a way him owning her and naming her after his values. He had mm -hmm. named his children things like prudence and silence and faith and all the things that were important to him in the women around him. And that was kind of her way of honoring where she came from, but making her identity her own. Breaking the mold. Yeah. Other than Sia, what other characters did you fall in love with while you were writing this book? So I, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people in Will. Um, when I first moved here, I worked at a comic book store for several years, and um, that's, most of my friends are in some way from that, that route. Um, we're all pretty nerdy. Um, we're all big gaming and reading and role-playing nerds, and we all go to Comic-Con, and I knew that when I was writing her best friend that that was going to be, he was going to have some of that in him. Um, that's just what I relate to, and that's very easy for me to write, but I also knew that um, he was going to have some flaws of his own um, because, you know, especially as teenagers, um, no friendship is without its bumps. Um, and then I also really came to love uh, Santi. She occupied a very specific space in my mind and in my heart. I knew her almost as well as I knew Sia. And she's not necessarily one of the main front and center characters, but as the story unfolds, she does become a very key player and decisions that she makes based on her experiences as a trans girl definitely ripple through the whole story and affect the direction that everything goes. Did you have to do any sort of special um, research for some of your characters? I did a lot of research into Sia being some, some anecdotal, some talking with people and patients, um, some actually um, buckling down and researching online um, so that I could authentically write about her as someone with a limb difference. Um, she has a below the knee amputation and as someone who was determined not to be defined by her differences, not to be defined by her trauma, she decided what's one of the hardest things I could possibly do as someone with 1.5 natural legs? Well, I'm going to be a track star. And I needed to know both um, kind of what that was like. I was the kid who wrote essays about sports instead of actually doing the sports in high school. I've never been athletic or very active, so I knew nothing about running track. I knew nothing about what kind of prosthetic you might need to run track. And I really love researching, so I'll go down some deep, deep, dark rabbit holes and end up way off on a tangent somewhere. But yeah, that was something I had to research quite a bit. Um, and then certain revelations, certain groups that are introduced later in the book, I wanted to have a historical basis. I wanted to have some sort of legitimacy that was tied in with, with things that had happened um, over centuries and so that became another avenue of research that I got to do and that's a privilege to me but that's probably part of my nerdiness is I can go read about you know 300 year old Russian history or what have you and just know nothing but joy for hours and then it's time to go to bed and 
You could get stuck in that rabbit hole, though, of researching and never finish. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's <laughs> part of one of the challenges of writing is knowing when to say stop, right? Yeah. Um, so in terms of, of the three books, are all three books written? No. Um, book two is pretty well on its way. Um, and part of having this comprehensive package to pitch to a publisher, which ended up being Blackstone, was being able to tell them, like, I know where this is going. Here's a 10-page outline of this book. Here's a 10-page outline oh. of that book. Um, so that they knew and could kind of have that that guarantee that as a debut author, I'm not going to get one book out there and just flounder. Um, that I have a path for this and I know where it's going. Um, so I haven't started book three yet, um, but it's it's got a pretty detailed skeleton and it's it's ready to go. I think a lot of other writers can probably empathize with getting distracted by other projects. And so I have recently been derailed by a kind of dark fantasy fairy tale that I started writing some time ago. And um, it gets to the point where when you're writing a book, you're so enmeshed in that world and those characters and being in their heads that it's hard to switch gears. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the last couple months is where I've been is I've knowing that I need to switch gears and get back into Sia's world, but I've been so in this other character's head um, that it can be a real struggle and it can make you feel like you're losing your mind sometimes when you're like, Wait, wh <laughs> what is my head? Like, what am I, what's uh, Becca doing what's today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they become real. Yeah, I mean, they really yeah, do in, in some ways. And uh, you feel a little schizophrenic when that happens, doesn't it? When they sort of yeah. take over, or all of a sudden you're driving and then Sia tells you something of, of where what's going right? on with the and story. And then I have to pull over and make a note in my phone, but I guess the silver lining is that you're never alone when you have the voices <laughs> in your head. <laughs> so that's really cool. So... Young Adult is, um, of course, I think Young Adult Mystery is sort of making a comeback, which is kind of wild, because um, it's, it's um, you know, we've also got Romanticy, which is really, you know, that Sarah J. Moss. Spicier, the better. Spicier, <laughs> exactly. I think Gothicana looks pretty spicy there on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. Yeah. Um, so, but... It sounds like you've got your hand in, in several different pots that young adults enjoy, but also that you enjoy. And clearly you're enjoying writing this book. And I think that for anybody reading this book, this is a great mystery for any age. Um, I feel very comfortable, though, handing this to a 13-year-old and saying, this is a great book. Um, was your intent to write a young adult book, or was that just kind of your first sort of... See, it was just the character that called to you. Yeah, really the latter. Um, when I came to know Sia, I, I just knew who she was. I knew she was um, in high school. And I think young adult fiction is so powerful because it's going into a time of our lives when there's just so much drama. There's It feels like like your relationships are also intense and a lot of them you're experiencing emotions for the first time. Um, you feel like decisions that you make are going to have such large scale consequences for your future. Um, but at the same time, you're still a child. So you still have this curiosity. You still have this wonder. You still have this openness to experience where you haven't closed all these doors mm -hmm. yet. 
and really defined who you are and who you're going to be. You're still figuring that out. Um, so I just think writing young adult, there's there's just so much possibility, and it 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 really leaves it open for really vibrant and rich plots. And that's something I've always really enjoyed in young adult fiction. The highs are high, the lows are lower. Yeah. Certain things that as once we think about as adults really weren't that important but seem like the end of the world as right. we were younger. And vice versa, that there are some things that there are very um, serious choices that you have to make that are going to, to you know shape who you are in your future. Right. You know, so you're kind of on that precipice of of you know of of emotion and of life choices but there's still that opportunity to direct and correct course a little bit too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, which is really exciting. Um I wonder if there are any questions from the audience. Anybody has any questions for Rebecca? Pretty quiet today. Christian, anybody online? Nothing yet? All right. Well, then we'll go ahead. Um, I'm sure you've got people you want to chat with, celebrate the launch of this book. For those of you who are getting your book signed today, I would suggest getting it signed and dated because technically <laughs> the release date is not until the 27th. Blackstone has given us special dispensation to sell this three days ahead of time. So go ahead and get your book signed. I'd say get it dated, get it personalized, whatever you want, but get that date in there. Cause Is that's there a notary in house. <laughs> 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 because that's, that's pretty cool that they're allowing us to do this. Um, for those of you who are online, thank you very much for watching. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today. This is so, so cool. Uh, I just say pleasure. let's celebrate and uh, congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thank you. Let's give Rebecca a big round of applause. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.